this morning we're going to be in Hosea, again, chapter 5. Um, Hosea chapter 5. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to actually kind of make a bit of a confession. Uh, my brother Derek tells me that confession is good for the soul, but terrible for the reputation. But I feel I have to do it. I'm right now fighting a bit of a temptation. I don't know if you've seen me preach here before, but I usually start with the need to pray because I often feel really insufficient to preach from the pulpit, to say, thus saith the Lord to a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ, because to be honest with you, I'm not perfect. And it's often very tempting for me to try and pretend that I'm good enough. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'm perfect, but I would love to be able to convince you guys that at the very least, you should respect me as a guy. You know, I'm handsome, I've got a nice suit, I'm standing up here, I've got lots of degrees on my wall, I've got a library that I spend time in. I really do desire to have people, you know, respect me on my own. And I say that's a confession because that's a very dangerous thing. It's very dangerous, especially here in the church. And in church, it's really easy because I love you guys. I really do. I care about you. Uh, I look at you right now. Uh, I love you too much to hug you because hugging makes me very nervous. But I do care about you as people, and I do care about what you think of me. And I know that, and added to that, I know that I, in the Word of God, there are standards for how a person should act, how a person should be. There's, there's something about holiness that I need to be, and it's always tempting that when I come here on Sunday morning, I want you desperately to believe that I'm a good dude, that you can trust me, that you can like me. I really want to believe that. And the problem is, first of all, I'm lying because I'm not all together. I don't have everything figured out. I'm not perfect. Heck, I've probably sinned more today than... I've sinned enough today to damn me to hell a thousand times if it weren't for the blood of Christ. And I want you to believe that I'm good, so I find myself trying to pretend that I'm good, and when I stand in the pulpit, it's a thousand times worse, and so I usually begin in prayer to try and remind myself of the situation. And uh, Jeff just prayed for me, so that seems like a little bit of a redundancy, so I'm not going to do it this morning, but that's why I'm suffering there. I want to be good enough. Not perfect, but good enough. And the problem is, being good enough can often be an effective replacement for Christ in our lives. We can try to pretend that we're good. We can imagine that, you know, well, I'm okay, you're okay, and so I don't really need Jesus. I don't need the forgiveness of God because I may not be perfect, but I'm an okay dude. I'm at least better than a lot of people here. Or at least a lot of people in the streets. At least I'm in church this morning. I like to believe that I can do that. And it's dangerous because it blocks the gospel to say that we're good enough. It really does. First of all, for us who are believers, who know Jesus Christ, if we start telling ourselves that we're good enough and telling each other that we're good enough, we end up deceiving ourselves and deceiving others. Jesus Christ then becomes just a tack on, just a small thing that fills up the little bit of holiness that we need to pass the divine bar. Jesus is good, but he's not the all-surpassing value of the universe, which he is. We can deceive ourselves that way by believing that we are good enough. But from a general perspective and from the perspective of the world around us, it can get worse. You see, the way we operate as believers is the way that people are going to imagine that Christ operates with believers. This is 
since we claim to know Jesus, we claim to know God, when people look at us, they're going to take some uh, beliefs about who our God is, about what our God can do. And if we are the kinds of people who are mostly put together and imagine that we are, well, righteous in ourselves, that's basically the term self-righteousness, that's where it comes from, people who imagine that they're righteous in themselves. If we imagine that, the people out in the world are going to imagine that they need to clean themselves up before they come to Jesus, and that's not true. Jesus saved us while we were sinners, amen? He continues to save us even though in a real sense we don't deserve it, amen? He, in his goodness, saves us. And that's important for the people outside to know because they need to know the true good news that regardless of where they are right now, regardless of how valueless they may feel, regardless of that feeling, if I feel in the pulpit a little bit uh, problematic and I know the gospel, can you imagine what it's like for people who live every day knowing that they have sin in their lives? knowing that they don't measure up, knowing the things that they've done to other people, how the heck are they going to be able to come to Jesus if they have to clean themselves up first, knowing how dirty they are? And they imagine that we aren't dirty because we pretend we're not. And that's a problem. Tim Keller in The Prodigal God, good book by the way if you want to read it, states, the crucial point here is that in general, religiously observant people were offended by Jesus. But those estranged from religious and moral observance were intrigued and attracted to him. A little further down the page, if the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, namely offending people who are religious and religiously observant and attracting people who know their needs, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be full of elder brothers from the parable of the prodigal son, which is the name of the book, than we'd like to think. We may be, we, we may be actually more self-righteous than God-righteous. You see, we sometimes like to imagine that we could get away without having Jesus in our lives. We really do. I mean, we don't say it that way. I, you were all Christians, right? We would never say that I can do without Jesus. But I mean, we act like that. We go through our days, you know, trying to just muscle up our own ability to get through the, sinful, the, through the sins that we have and do the right things during the day. We try to ignore the ways we failed, you know, just paper them over. And yet Jesus is for you. He's for you now. Jesus is closer than your breath, and he desires to live in you, to live with you, to be your brother, to redeem you, and he desires to redeem people in the world. You see, there is a serious problem with us humans post-Adam. We call it sin, it's, that's a church word, but it is a very major problem that we face. And we face it just as much in the church as outside it. Hate to break it to you, none of us are sinlessly perfect. This side of eternity, none of us are perfect. God is still working on me. But there is, despite the serious problem, despite the greatness of this problem of a an um, of a good God who loves us and we reject him all the time, there is a glorious cure to that serious problem, and that's Jesus Christ.
Christ. We need to recapture that image. We need to understand that. And that's why, despite the fact that it's not very uplifting, we're still in Hosea. So this is Hosea chapter 5. Now remember the situation. Hosea is speaking to the people of Israel at, at a time when they believe that they're pretty good, but they're facing the judgment of God because they've been idolatrous. They've been following after other gods. And sometimes they've been saying that the other gods that they're following after is actually the God of the Bible, but they're lying. They're just making up a new God to follow. And he uses some pretty strong words to refer to it. So chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they knew not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them, for with their flocks and herds. They shall go to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields." Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We will follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I shall make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, and then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. I will return again to my place until... They acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So I just want to draw your attention to a few points here. Uh, That sounds really, really harsh. Prophets do sound harsh. That's just something that when you're reading prophets you kind of have to accept. But I want to be careful here and I want to Open your eyes to some hope that you can see here. And I want you to actually see more clearly because of what we see here in Hosea 5. My desire is that I would help you to see the value, the transcendent worth of Jesus Christ in your lives. So first of all, sin is serious. I remember many years ago, I was driving down a road in Fredericton and I saw a big billboard and it said, gluttony is a sin, but it's not illegal. And it was trying to get me to go buy an ice cream cake because apparently gluttony is not illegal, but it's a sin. And of course, that kind of underscores what we think of sin. We think of sin as just something that God says to poo-poo us something that we can really ignore if we want to. It's not like it's illegal. You know, it's only the God of the universe that's opposed to it, not, the, not like the government of Canada. Somehow people are more scared of Justin Trudeau than God. I, I don't get it. You see, sin is still serious. That's why Hosea is such an extreme set of words, because sin really is this serious. 
There's a couple of things that you should probably note here. God's righteousness opposes sin. And the reason is pretty simple. Sin is evil. Those things that we imagine are okay, if you actually look at it in in the grand scheme of things, are actually evil. And God is not evil. God is good. Sin ultimately has real effect in our lives. Sin really does kill. That's why God, if he is going to be just, must punish sin. And make no mistake, God is a good God and he does punish sin. That's why you see in the vast majority of this text people talking about, about well, punishment. Hosea 5, 8, and 10. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the land park. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Doesn't sound like something minor. It doesn't sound like something that we can ignore safely because God doesn't ignore it safely. And if we believe that God is good and loving, we have to accept that God is good and loving to punish sin. Now, we don't think that for ourselves. We, we, we think, again, we often deceive ourselves to think we're pretty good. But I mean, if you look at the world, most people recognize that sin needs to be punished. I mean, look at the political sphere around us. If somebody does something perceived as wrong, everybody comes down on them. Just see how, long, how many Twitter hits they get if, they, if you say something silly. People get, people get mad about evil. Look at the many stories about uh, sexual abuse in different past parts of our society. Look at the ways that the society reacts and get, with anger and nearly hatred at the evil around us. We do that for the evils we understand, but we don't do it for the evils that we ourselves do because, honestly, we want to make excuses for ourselves and attack other people. And yet God is righteous. He punishes all sin. Evil is still evil whether we do it or somebody else does it. Also, you should probably notice that surface righteousness does not fool God. It might fool one, of, uh, one another, but it doesn't fool God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, notice verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. These people are not the general hoi polloi. They're not the masses that, you know... Uh, wallow in sin. The priests are people that are supposed to be pretty righteous. They're supposed to be the examples of goodness in the kingdom. They're the reason that people think that they're following God. They're following the priests. And their surface righteousness isn't changing anything. You can go down to verse 4 there. Sorry, just back here. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them. So these people who are supposed to be holy, God sees that they are not holy. He sees that they deserve punishment. Verse 6, with their flocks and herds, they go to seek the Lord, it seems. They'll say, I'm going to look for God. And yet... God knows that they're not actually seeking after him. It's not, it's not bought. God doesn't buy the lie. Third, the kind of self-righteousness, the kind of sin that these priests are doing is catching, and it's deadly. Sin does, notice that it says in verse, uh, I think that's verse one, the second half of verse one, it says, you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. The priests have been a group of people who have supposed to have been following God, and they're not. And not only are they not following God, 
as they try to worship God in their strange, ungodly ways, they're leading other people into further sin. They're a snare, even as they worship. Their desire to look more holy, to be more holy, to be above other people, is calling other people to follow them into their sin. God's not tricked by this, but it is spreading. And oftentimes we use sin as if it's kind of like a disease, it's brokenness. Well, uh, the church actually sometimes says, you know, you have brokenness in your life. They try to shy away from the word sin. And I, I can kind of get that. I do have a hatred for disease. I mean, and God has a hatred for sin. I mean, just imagine what I, how I feel, felt when my dad got Parkinson's disease. My reaction to Parkinson's disease, I don't just kind of dislike it. After watching my dad move from being uh, an intelligent, uh, fun guy to be around, to unable to speak, and in his bed, unable to move, with no memory of who he was. I hate Parkinson's disease. Now, imagine, imagine that, you were, that I found out somebody had spread that disease to my dad, had chosen to give him that disease. Imagine a doctor had taken some kind of experiment to experiment on my dad and give him Parkinson's disease. Do you think I'd be happy? Do you think I would love that doctor? Do you think I'd be angry and would want revenge? You're darn tootin'. That's how God feels about sin. That's how God feels about the sin that the priests are doing to the house of Israel because they're seeking to be holy, they're seeking to pretend to be holy, and they're moving people away from God. They're giving them, they're moving them away from the truth and the worst part is, everybody believes they're being holy. They're seeking after God. They're, they're bringing their flocks forward, and God knows that they're not actually seeking after Him. They desire, they say they desire to be holy, but they don't. They just want to be acceptable to the people around them. They want to do the right things. They want to look like they're doing the right things without actually walking away from their sin without admitting their sin even, without turning to God that they might live in truth. You see, sin kills whether you're being misled into sin or whether you're desiring to seek after it yourself for evil ends. It still ends in the same thing. Just like any disease, just like anything that kills you, it doesn't matter what your intentions originally were, what you believe your intentions originally were. Sin kills. It's bad. It's very bad. So first of all, sin is serious. But second, sin can't be hidden before God. And now that sounds bad, doesn't it? I'm telling you, sin can't be hidden before God, right? You're imagining now, well, God now is going to come down on us with, with hatred and virulence, and we are going to be completely smote, smitten. I, I don't know what the word is, the past tense of to smite. God will smite us. And in a sense, that's true. But I want to tell you something here. When you look at Hosea chapter 5, recognize that it's a good thing that God cannot be tricked by your sin. God cannot be tricked by your sin. As much as I can put on a suit and try to pretend to be not good in front of you, God knows how much I need forgiveness from him. Even if I'm trying to pretend that I don't, even as I'm trying to convince other people that I don't, God is not fooled. He knows what I need. Look at verses 3 and 4. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. 
For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. He's giving the truth. God is not fooled even by a religious observance. Again, go down to six and seven. With their flocks and herds, they'll shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him for he's withdrawn from them. They've dealt faithlessly with the Lord for they have not, they've borne alien children. Now the new moon, which is a time when they used to do religious festivals, shall devour them with their fields. They found out, they've been found out by God. God is not fooled even if they imagine they are fooling him. James Boyce in his book on the Minor Prophets says, if the question were put to Israel, what are you doing? They would say, we're seeking Jehovah. They probably would point to their flocks and herds dedicated, to sacri- dedicated for sacrifice as proof of their sincerity and their intentions. If the question were put to many people today, they would claim the same thing. We're seeking God. Lots of people claim to be seeking God. Look how religious we are. But God says they're not seeking. And the reason he knows they're not seeking is that they're refusing to abandon the sin that always keeps a person from actually coming to him. You see, what's happening is, both today and in the past, humans desire to to make a show of seeking after God, but it's hard to actually want to seek after God because it would require that we love God more than our sin. And let's face it, we like us some sin usually. It's different for each of us. Each of us has those one or two things that we desire more than God that we say, well, you know, God's going to be okay with this one little thing we've got. As long as we do all of the right things and come to church at the right times, God will be okay with this sin that we have. It's different for all of us, but I'm pretty sure we all have them. If you don't have one of those things, I'm sorry, I apologize. You should probably actually be standing in this pulpit instead of me. But most of us have these things that keep us from God. It says, it says in verse four, our deeds sometimes do not permit us to return to God because we know that if we turn to God, he is going to deal with our sin sooner or later. You see, that's kind of the problem we run to. It is true that if we come to God, we get changed, but it's not true that we need to clean ourselves up to come to God. But we do, if you do come to God, you will be changed. Behold, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. If you turn to God, I'm I'm sorry, your sin probably will go away. It will be fought. The spirit of God within you will strive against your sin. And unfortunately, it's very easy for us to imagine that the sin is more valuable than the God who fights it. At least before seeing who God, God for who he really is. I mean, when you think about it, it is pretty silly, isn't it? We imagine that, I don't know, the, that, that long TV show that we keep watching that isn't very godly is more valuable than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I know that there are parents who don't like their kids to hear the word, the S word, stupid, but that's stupid. And we do it all the time. We really imagine that our deeds, our sinful deeds are more valuable than God. And because we value our sinful deeds more than God, that doesn't permit us to return to God. Though returning to God would heal us. So God sees our inability to turn to him. He sees the priest's inability to turn them. He isn't fooled by the surface, the surface presentations. And the punishment still comes. Look at verse 14. Uh, by the way, this is, not Jesus, this is not God saying that he is a lion in a good sense. He says, for I will be a, like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Even I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. You see, when, when we say that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, 
it doesn't just mean that he's powerful against our enemies. He's powerful against his enemies. And if we want to stand as enemies of Christ, we face him as a, li- as a lion. I would recommend against that. You see, God is not fooled. God stands against sin, and God's standing against sin is not stopped by our desires to hide ourselves. Our religion doesn't protect us from Jesus' righteousness. It doesn't. Now, that sounds really bad. Allow me to put the little bit of hope here that is in the text and explain it a little bit more extremely. Look at verse 15. It says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. God has a purpose for his people in punishing them. The people of Israel are facing God's punishment not for no reason, not because God is really mad and is just going to burn out his anger on his people. He desires his people to earnestly turn to him. He desires that they would see him. And so he says, I will remove myself. I will show the evils that you're doing so that you might turn back to me. He desires to cure them. He desires to face the sin in their lives as it really is and deal with it. You see, God doesn't want us to be surface righteous. He wants us to be righteous righteous. He doesn't want us to be simply eye pleasers, people who desire to show the right face to people around them. He desires us to be the kinds of people who do the right things because we want to. He desires people who worship him not just in the surface, but in spirit and in truth. And friends, he's powerful to do exactly that. And that is his promise here in Hosea. And friends, we are not in ancient Israel. We exist in 2019 in Newfoundland and Labrador. And praise God that we know something that the people of Israel didn't know as clearly. You see, we live after the time of Christ. We know God's cure for our sin. We don't need to be waiting for the end of this story. I don't need to give you a spoiler alert for how this ends. We already know. You see, while we like to believe that sin is going to be something bad for us and facing the sin and the punishment and the, uh, God's opposition to our sin is terrible, I'm going to tell you right now, facing our sin and going to God is far better than wallowing in our sin. There are joys at his right hand everlasting. Why look to sin? And you see, we already know that we aren't perfect. We already know that we don't, we're not the truth. Paul Tournier, when he was writing the book Escape from Loneliness in the mid-60s, kind of gave an example of this. He told, he told his readers, a diffuse and vague guilt feeling kills the personality. He was talking about how we as people know that we're not righteous. I mean, in the darkness of our, of our hearts, in the times when we know we look at ourselves honestly, we know we're not perfect. We know that we can't, that we can't stand before God as righteous. That's why we run from him. Because we know we can't stand righteously. And so we have this diffuse and vague guilt feeling and it, and it slowly kills our personality because that's what sin does. It kills us. Whereas the conviction of sin, 
The knowledge that we are sinners, the knowledge that, we can, that there is something that we need to turn from gives life to it. And that life is not a life that comes just by, you know, looking at ourselves and trusting in ourselves and trusting in our own righteousness and trusting in our own ability because the cure for sin is Jesus Christ. Amen? Guys, as dark as your sin is, as dark as anything you face is, as dark as the things that you feel in your life that you know aren't perfect, the times that you imagine that you haven't met what needs to be done, friends, the cure is available and that cure is Jesus Christ. Friends, I just told you that you can be saved completely. I told you that there is a cure for sin and nobody's dancing yet. That's weird. I don't think we get it. Friends, in Christ we can be saved, completely saved, totally saved. Christ is our cure for sin. A disease far worse than any disease we know. If I told you that I had the cure for cancer, people would be lining up to get interviews with me. And I'm telling you, I've got a cure for something far better than cancer. I can cure sin itself through Jesus Christ. Just put your faith in him. And nobody wants an interview. This is weird. Sin's cure is Jesus Christ. Don't believe me. Believe the word. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Hosea is not written to us to feel bad about sin. Hosea is written to us so that we can turn to Christ and live. It's a godly repentance that we're aiming at. And Christ saves sinners, and we're all sinners. This is Mark chapter 2, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And friends, we're sick. And there's a physician. I came to, not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we're all sinners. Regardless of the things we try to pretend uh, in, uh, in front of other people, we know in the darkness of our hearts that we're sinners. And he is here for sinners. In case you missed it, he repeats it. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full repentance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Not Steve, that's Paul. But the, the feeling remains the same. Friends, as dark as the world is, as dark as our hearts are, there is a cure for sin in Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. We don't need to wallow in sin anymore. We don't need to hide from sin. Sin is defeated. Christ lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we deserved. It's paid. If only you would put your faith in Jesus. If only we would put our faith in Jesus. And before, you know, the, the Christians say, well, that, that, that's fine. I put my faith in Jesus back when I was four years old and now I don't need to you know, do that anymore. It's a continuing thing. Keep putting your faith in Jesus. Not in your righteousness, not in your ability to snow the rest of us into believing that you're sinless. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ saves sinners like us. And it's available now. Right now. 
You don't need to wait for an altar call. You can turn to Jesus now. Just put your faith and trust in him. Turn from your sin and towards the beauty of Jesus Christ because he's beautiful. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Friends, what was promised in verse 15 of Hosea 5 is true now. We can turn to Christ. We can be changed. We can have our hearts moved to a strange affection for Christ instead of our sins. We can be truly righteous in him instead of pretend righteousness in ourselves. And it's available now. And wow, we're not excited about that. The application then for all of what we're saying here from Hosea chapter 5, the application is that the gospel, Jesus Christ, is for you. I'm trying to make as many eye contacts as I possibly can. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for you right now. You don't need to run anymore. You don't need to hide anymore. In Christ, God is for you, not against you. In Christ, the Lion of Judah protects you. He keeps you. He doesn't destroy you. So, there are some basic applications that come from that. First of all, trust in Christ now. Earnestly seek God now. Don't wait until 10 minutes from now or 10 years from now. Turn to God now. Seek after him while he may be found. Why waste our time anymore in false hopes? Seek after the true hope, Jesus Christ. He's available. And don't let anything come between you and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Not your sin, not your bashfulness, Don't let those things stand between you and Christ. Not your belief that your sin is far worse than anybody else's sin. I'll tell you right now, it's not. It's just not. Your sin is not worthy of comparison to the righteousness of Christ. You may have been a horrible sinner, and yes, sin is horrible. Yes, you have faced horrible things by being a sinner, and you have done horrible violence to the glory of God. But Christ is still a better Savior. You are not capable of outsinning the grace of God. You're not that powerful. Jesus is far more powerful than you, and you can turn to him now, and you don't need to let your, desi- your own feelings of inadequacy stand between you and God. Because it's not about your inadequacy. It's about his adequacy. But also don't let your religion come between you and Christ. And this is, uh, and I I have to say, I am talking to myself on this one as much as everybody else. Don't let your desire to see, to have other people see you as good keep you from Jesus Christ. Don't pretend that your sin is not sin. Face your sin. Bring it to Christ and be forgiven of it. It's available now. And here is the final application point. And I'm not really sure how to say this as clearly other than just to say it. Reflect, point to, extol, revel in. Rejoice and reflect the glory of Jesus Christ who saves you. Don't look at the glory of yourself. Don't don't pump up your own glory to people around you. Pump up the glory of Jesus Christ because he saves you.
Don't look to me to be the example of what a righteous man should be. Look through the right, whatever righteousness you see in me to the Christ who's providing it. Don't, don't, deal with the, don't revel in the glory of a fat man standing in a pulpit. Glory in the Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God who saves us. Steve Bray at a, is at Multiply this week, and he was speaking to a room full of pastors. And this is one of the few times you might want to take notes of this. I'm going to say that Steve Bray understated something. Because he said to a group of pastors that they should be faithful, that they should work hard to see the gospel spread, and that it would be okay if they're not known. I'm going to say that's an extreme understatement. It's infinitely glorious that we aren't known. (laughs) It's infinitely glorious because it's not my glory. It's not our glory that's important. It's Christ's glory that's important. Which is better? To be the star of a very bad film or to be a footnote in the greatest story ever told? Which is better? Which is better to have a bunch of people here in this world just as lost as we are say, you're a pretty good dude or to hear at the end of time, well done, thou good and faithful servant from the lips of God Almighty? Which is better? I mean, that's a trick question. I I hope you're getting the answer correctly in your heads. It's always better to be speaking of the glory of God. It's infinitely glorious because he is infinitely glorious. Uh, We were watching a movie on Friday night, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, and I don't know if you've ever seen The Shawshank Redemption. Anybody seen The Shawshank Redemption? Decent film? Do you think it's an okay film? I think it's an, a fantastic film, to be honest with you. In the end of the film, just as you know, the p- camera is panning out, and you know, the, on the blue, the blue Pacific that forgets all things, you see a phrase that says, "In memory of Alan Green." Who's Alan Green? <laughs> Anybody know? Uh, a few of you do. I know you Googled it right after we saw the movie. Alan Green was a was a produ- was a agent a, liter- uh, a literary agent that was helping out the guy who made the film he's a footnote in a great film and i remember him if it's true of a film like shawshank redemption which is going to pass in 10 years lots of people are not going to know what that film is how much greater will it be to be a footnote in the great story of God. And what's true for us individually is also true of us as a church. Let's not, Calvary, let's not be a kind of church that's about promoting the benefit of Calvary. Let's not be trying simply settle for being a good church where people love each other and we welcome one another and we uh, you know, we're pretty nice, and you know, people will all say, Wow, you go to Calvary. Calvary is a nice church. Let's not settle for that. Instead, let's seek to reflect the glory of God. Let's set it up so that let's seek to be the kind of church that reflects Jesus Christ among us. So that as people come, as people see the many ways which God works through the lives of those of us who believe, they can see the truth of who Jesus Christ is and love him for it and glory in him. Let us be a church that lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, it's easy for us to just you know, seek after the glory of man But if we do seek after our own glory, all we get is possibly our own glory. But if we seek after the glory of Christ, 
if we seek to be the kinds of people who, sh- who reflect Jesus Christ, not because we're righteous in ourselves, not because we have it all figured out, but because Christ has it all figured out through us. Oh, friends, being a good church is, gonna be a, is just going to be a given. We could be a glorious church, a church that shows who Jesus is to the city. If we seek, the, if we seek to be uh, glorious in ourselves, we're probably not going to get it. But if we seek his glory above everything else, friends, we may actually reflect the glory of God to those around us. People may actually see who Jesus is. And we'll be changed in the meantime to be more like Christ and become the church that he's called us to be. I think that's what, part of what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And, and which of you, by being anxious, even anxious about your, well, the way people think of, it, think of you, can add a single hour to a span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what we, shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or I wonder if that guy likes me. I wonder if that girl thinks I'm, I'm holy. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things shall be added unto you. So ultimately, let us all repent. Repent of wallowing in the false and transient glories of sin, but also repent of the failed glories of our own deceptive self-righteousness. God's not fooled and honestly, I don't matter. Let us be about the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you reflected through that sermon. I pray that you that you are the way that you as the way, the truth, and the life show yourself to be glorious to your people. Lord God, I pray that we would turn away from wickedness and even from our own self-righteousness and just trust in your righteousness and seek after you. Lord God, don't let our actions keep us from you. Instead, let our desire for you move us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.